please pray with me? Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's be honest again. If Ash Wednesday was not the most glamorous day to begin a new ministry, the sacrifice of Isaac is not the most cheering, uplifting text for my first Sunday morning sermon with you all. You wouldn't exactly draw it up that way, would you? I cannot promise you this is the end of awkward beginnings, but I can promise you, even as the Lord did for Abraham centuries ago, that the Lord shall provide. I can promise you that no matter the difficulty or hardship, no matter where the path of obedience to the Lord might lead you or me and our life together, the Lord shall provide. That is the bottom line. That is the hopeful, joyful word of this otherwise kind of troubling event in Genesis 22. That is an uplifting message, even if how we get there is really hard and doesn't seem very uplifting at all. This morning, I would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. In the English Standard Version, like I have here, that's page 16. And the events of Genesis 22 roll out in a rather direct and chilling sort of manner. From first, the test of obedience, which is in verses one through four of this chapter. Then second, the test of faith, verses five through eight. And finally then, that good word of the provision of the Lord in verses nine through 14. So first, the test of obedience. By the time we meet Abraham in our passage this morning, Abraham has been no stranger to the Lord God calling upon him and telling him to act. We first meet Abram, as he was then called, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, where his father Terah left Ur of the Chaldeans to immigrate to the land of Canaan. But they get waylaid and they stop in Haran. According to Jewish Midrashic tradition, it was there in Haran where King Nimrod of Babylon ordered Terah, Abraham's father, to sacrifice his son Abram in a fiery furnace. I kid you not. It was punishment, supposedly, as the Midrashic tradition goes. It was punishment because Abram, working in his father's idol shop, destroyed the idols he was selling to the people of Babylon. So zealous was Abram for the one true God. And the tradition has it, Abram was then cast into a fiery furnace, most likely a shrine to one of these deities whom he had destroyed. But the flames did not singe a single hair on him. Much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, later with another Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 3. So Abram was apparently, as tradition would have it, miraculously spared from the flames of that furnace. 
because it appears he was faithful to the Lord God, to Yahweh. Now, we don't know if these events actually transpired. It's just a tradition. But it could explain why eventually Abraham, name change having taken place, obeyed the Lord God when he called him to leave Haran and to complete the journey his father Terah had failed to complete, namely to go to Canaan, or what eventually became known as the land of Israel. It was a call to leave behind him his family, their idolatrous ways, and the land where he had grown up, and to follow the Lord. And this call came with a promise, I will make you and your offspring a great people and nation, and through you and your offspring, I will bless the world. This was not the last time the Lord spoke to him either. The last time the Lord had commanded him, the last time the Lord promised him blessing, the last time the Lord would then actually bless him, nor the last time Abram responded in obedience and faith. You see, in time, Abram, then eventually renamed Abraham, would know that the Lord would reward his faithful obedience with blessing and provision, specifically in the birth of his own son, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise, born miraculously when he and his wife Sarah were long past childbearing years. And through Isaac, the Lord promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation and to bless the world. So perhaps this experience was all on Abraham's heart and mind when he received on the face of it a simply horrific and disheartening word from the Lord in chapter 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall show you. I cannot stand before you this morning and tell you why precisely the Lord would tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Why would that ever seem acceptable to a father, especially one as advanced in years as Abraham? Why, from a God who has been faithful and loving towards Abraham and his family? Perhaps, again, in this context, it was maybe conceivable to Abraham because There were those deities in his day who required the sacrifice of the firstborn child. There's biblical and historical evidence that Canaanite gods like Baal or Molech both required firstborn male heirs as a burnt sacrifice. Paradoxically, to guarantee future fertility. (laughs) So much for the first one. (laughs) The God was apparently going to provide more. But the fact is, Yahweh... The one Lord God had led Abraham and his family out of that world and away from those terrible gods. So what's going on here? What's more, we the reader hear from the narrator that the Lord sought to test Abraham. That's the clear words of verse 1 that begins the whole narrative. So maybe we ourselves can be relieved somewhat from the horrific tension of a father offering his son. But Abraham himself had no such consolations. How do we make sense of this? 
I must confess, when I became a father, this passage became really, really hard for me to read. And maybe it is for some of you as well. There are two things going on here, I believe. First and foremost, I suspect there is a clue in the very specific words the Lord chose to address Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Did Abraham perhaps love his son more than the Lord? I mean, you could imagine after all they had been through to have him, how cherished he would be. Perhaps Abraham and Sarah just didn't want to ever let him go and were perhaps very fixated on him, the gift, the son of the promise, more so than the giver and the promising one. So the Lord needed to know, and in fact, so did Abraham. <laughs> Since we know it was merely a test, we can say now that it was merely a test to see and make sure that Abraham's loves are properly in line. Does he, does he love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and mind? And his son Isaac asks himself, or perhaps more than himself, but less than the Lord. If the Lord is to bless the nations through Abram's son Isaac, it can only be if Isaac is not one more idol like those Abraham had supposedly left behind. Isaac must be and always remain a gift. And Abraham's devotion must be and always remain fixed only upon the giver. You see? And this is then, secondly, the reason why later in the Pentateuch, in these first five books of the Bible, the Lord actually commanded that the firstborn sons, like Isaac, be offered back to him as a sacrifice. In Exodus 13, at the institution of the Passover, the Lord requires the sacrifice of all firstborn offspring. Here are words from the first two verses of 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. We might call this the offering of the first fruits, that the first, which in the ancient world was always seen as the best, the most privileged, the most honored, belongs essentially to the Lord. Not your second best, not whatever you later yield or earn once you make provision for yourself. No, the first and the best belongs to the Lord. Later in Exodus 13, the Lord also requires that that firstborn son be redeemed. This seems to be the sense of what it means to sacrifice that son. Is that not that you're going to lay him on an altar as a burnt offering? Abraham's events, events of Abraham's life already proved what Yahweh's principle really was. But it was in your heart and your life to yield back that firstborn. And in fact, what Exodus required was an additional offering, additional sacrifice to, if you will, buy back uh, your son. In fact, one translation translates that word redeemed as bought back. For the child actually belongs to the Lord. 
but the parents actually simply are caretakers of the gift of children. When you stop and think about it, that's what parenting is really all about anyhow, right? <laughs> We're just given this gift of children, and we are to care for them as unto Lord. So if we understand God's test of Abraham in this way, it still, I think, does speak to us as well. As difficult as God's command to Abraham was, it is actually a test not just of Abraham's heart, but of ours as well. Who do you love the most? What do you love the most? And how does that play itself out in your life? Are there ways that your time, your money, your work, your energy, or your focus reflect that the Lord is not truly Lord in your life? You see, it's no mistake that we read this passage in Lent. <laughs> Part of why we fast during this season is to set aside, if only for a time, some of our earthly delights, like sweets or alcohol, or things that just become especially fond to us and can wrap their way around our hearts and our minds and preoccupy us in ways that are unhealthy, that bring destructive imbalance to our lives and might just might sit on the throne instead of the Lord. The Lord knows that we need sacrifice in this sense, that we need to be able to give up what is most precious to us if he is to be most precious to us of all. You see, you don't have to have the one ring of power to have a problem with God being your all and in all, and above all. So that seems to be what's going on here in this uh, test initially of obedience for Abraham. What about the test of faith, secondly, in verses 5 through 8? I think it's one of the most astonishing features of this entire event is that we get no inner access from the narrator to the thoughts or the feelings of either Abraham or Isaac. Do you notice that? The Lord speaks, Abraham obeys. He goes, he chops wood, he carries wood, he arrives at the destination. It's just a very stark story of words and of response. That's all. There's really no emotion to it. And maybe that's part of what kind of horrifies us about this story is that you got to think that Abraham was uh, just stew of emotions, imagining what this must be like, right? Or can you imagine being Isaac and being bound up and put on that altar? I don't know, man. I think I would have tried to take the old man out. I'm not sure I would have stood for that kind of thing, right? This has led some more modern and contemporary commentators to muse on what Abraham must have felt Right? It's irresistible, right? Because we feel the tension here. I recall coming across this passage as I became a father, and it just honestly made me sick to my stomach. I couldn't imagine myself going through that. And yet we repeatedly see Abraham 
in the face of what must have been a horror, him saying these words, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Faith is a trust that defies your circumstances and even your own feelings. It is a confidence in the Lord beyond what you can see, beyond what you can sense or feel around you in any moment, and maybe for many moments in time. You see, it can also involve a patience that even if the Lord is not provided yet, the one with faith waits patiently, expectantly, and with hope that the Lord will, in His way, in His time, provide. That's faith. And guess what? I've got some bad news for you. We only learn faith and trust in the Lord the hard way. Faith is not easy. It never is. If it is, it wouldn't really be faith. <laughs> it would be me just calculating the next steps and moving forward with my plans and my design. Like Abraham himself, his own story is instructive here because he liked to learn things the hard ways, right? In those chapters before Genesis 22, Abraham has twice deceived people he encountered, lying that his beautiful wife, Sarah, was his sister and not his wife. Why? <laughs> because he was afraid of these powerful people, Pharaoh in Egypt and Abimelech in Canaan, that they would kill him and take his wife. So let's work out a little deceptive plot here to keep you safe and me alive. In short, Abraham earlier lacked the faith that the Lord would protect them and provide for them in the midst of a potentially hostile situation. Way to go, Abraham, right? He's in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. Not so much in some of these earlier stages. And then as the years wore on, Abraham's faith started to waver that God was actually going to fulfill his promise of a son and that he would be the father of a great nation through Sarah, his aging wife. So he took matters into his own hands again. He took Hagar, Sarah's servant girl, as a wife, and she conceived a son, Ishmael. A son, but not the son of the promise. Lack of faith is like that, right? Where you have to learn the hard way <laughs> that trusting in God is not going to be easy or comfortable. And in fact, it may require you to step out in risk and not knowing how the Lord will provide. We eventually see how God rewarded Abraham's faith that he was given the gift of the son when he finally let go of his devices and his ways and trusted the Lord. It is clear that at some level, Abraham learned that with God, whatever he asks of us, he has a purpose and an intent and provision for us. It will be ultimately good for us, even if we cannot see how in the here and now, even if we can't see when his promise will be fulfilled. This summer is the 10th anniversary of me stepping away from a promising career in higher education. 
to follow what I thought was the Lord's call to go plant a church. Had some initial traction. Things were looking good. And it was hard to plant a church and be a college professor at the same time. So we stepped out in faith. We, if you will, left Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran in search of our Canaan. Unfortunately, a year later, it was very clear that's not what the Lord had in store. And so for about the next nine years, I had what can only be really described as a kind of vocational wilderness experience where I encountered, yes, many wonderful oases of ministry here and there doing really wonderful things, gifts from the Lord to me. But I had a few times where I kept holding on to that gift, like, okay, this has got to be it. And just in the due course of time, it was clear it wouldn't, and it wasn't. Fast forward now to September 26th of last year. My family and I were at a transitional point. My life was okay, but troubled by financial distress, by vocational uncertainty, and frankly, I'd had about enough. And so you can read, I won't, actually, I won't let you read it, but it's in my journal where I let the Lord know how I felt about that. But as is always often the case when I journal something out, it's a way for me to actually get clear and get to something basic with the Lord. And by the end of that, there was a turning where I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to hand this situation over to you. Here's what I'm going to do because I need to take a you know, kind of grunt job just to help out our finances. I, I needed to go ahead and do the things I could do. But I just said, Lord, I am trusting you that you're going to provide. Um, four days later, I submitted an application to a church called Church of the Resurrection in Flower Mound, Texas. And less than four months later, here I stand. The Lord wants you to trust him. And trust is good, even when it's hard. That's what Abraham now learns. And I guarantee you, that's why Abraham just obeyed. Finally, what happened? The provision of the Lord there in verses 9 through 14 could not be more clear. Because as Abraham goes to wield the terrible dagger on his son, the Lord just stops him dead cold in his tracks and said, now I know that you truly honor and love me in your heart and that you would not withhold even your only son, your dearly beloved son. You might say your only begotten son from me, the Lord God. The Lord sees and knows the true character of each one of our hearts, just as he did Abraham's. And when our heart finally lays on the altar, whatever it is that comes between us and the Lord, that's when he can provide and bless us. And he offers a substitute sacrifice, a sacrifice that we can't even come up with, ourselves, it has to be the firstborn 
the only begotten son. To be the sacrifice for our sin, for our inadequacy, for our little idols that we erect in our heart. But the great promise and the, the tremendous beauty of this passage by the end of it is that we can see so crystal clearly, yes, now looking back through the eyes of Jesus Christ, that the son who carried the wood up to the hill and was bound as a sacrifice is just a foreshadowing of another son who shall carry wood up a hill and be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. You see, if you have trust and faith in the Lord God, he wants to give you every good blessing of salvation and provision. And he's dying to do it, quite literally, on our behalf. So as we now come to this, his table, I just invite each of us, and I invite us actually through this season of our life together as a church, let's trust the Lord, even where it's hard, and receive from him what he has for us, and for you, for each one of us, and for us collectively, because what the Lord has for us is way better than whatever it is we could dream of ourselves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.